Hi, I'm Josh Sway, and I'm the director of Insert Coin. Midway is the punk rock, you know? They're like the Ramones or the Sex Pistols of the video game industry. If their game became very successful, you were gonna make a lot of money. Keeps on fire! I'd buy that for a dollar! I always thought with video games, when you make them, somebody would come with this book. This is what we're gonna make, and we start page one, and we start making it. It was never like that. It was like, so what do you guys wanna do? The games are louder. The graphics are more detailed. More, more blood, more blood. Toasty! What game does that? They've got this game, Mortal Kombat, and you can kill people. Yeah, isn't that really cool? What the hell? <laughs> we can do whatever we want. We wanted to crush the player. We want to give them a greater challenge. La Vista, baby. This is probably the greatest story of Midway. I call it like the Big Bang of the video game universe. I mean, we went from blank screens to all of a sudden, no one had seen anything like that in the video game. We went to the well too many times. And that was the end of Quaynon. We're going to sue the crap out of them. I don't think it hit me till decades later that my image is still in there. I have daughters now, they're gonna see this. Sometimes I'd sneak up behind him, guy would take a shot and I'd go, ugly shot, boom shakalaka. He'd turn around and go, hey, you sound like the guy. I am the guy, dude. I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm working with gods. Mortal Kombat! Mark. T2. The grid. You know what a game is? A game is a hundred of those cool things, and now you have one. We've got the godfather, the doctor of video games. Uh, what do you call yourself? Ah, uh, face. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> That's good. That's a wrap. That is the trailer for the soon-to-be-released documentary, Insert Coin. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. For those of us who grew up in the 1980s and 90s, the arcade was a home away from home. And most likely we were playing a video game that was the creative genius of a scrappy group of renegade designers in Chicago. In his film, Insert Coin, director Josh Sway captures what it was like for the fellows at Midway Games to revolutionize the video game industry. And along the way, Josh perfectly captures 1990s pop culture. We catch up with Josh from his home in Chicago. Josh Sway, welcome to Factual America. Josh, how are things there in Chicago? It's great, thanks. Well, I mean, as, as great as it can be uh, under the uh, circumstances. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Chicago's a great town, and so if I'm 
going to be sheltered in place. I can't, I can't think of a better city. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, have things settled down there at, at any time recently, or is it still kind of as it was a few months ago when the you know, peak it, of the, the virus? Yeah, you know, it, it had gotten better. And, uh, and the city started opening up again, but just yeah. recently it started to, things, things started to rise a little bit. So there, there are some concerns that there's a, there's a chance we might kind of take a step back. Um, yeah. so, you know, it's okay. We, we, you know, we get, we get everything delivered and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not suffering that badly. So I can't, I can't really complain. Yeah, it's exactly. I think of the people who actually are suffering. No, I can't, uh, can't complain whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we were supposed to meet up at South by Southwest, I think. Um, yeah. and maybe we'll talk more about that later, but uh, it's good to finally, finally meet you and, uh, and get you on the podcast. Um, the film is insert coin 2020. Now, Josh, where can we see this film? Uh, so right now it's currently winding its way around the, uh, the, uh, the quote unquote film festival circuit. I, I, yeah. like, it was supposed to a uh, world premiere at South by Southwest, but as yeah. we know, the entire world shut down. And so a lot of plans have changed. Uh, but since then, the film has been accepted in quite a few other film festivals. And so um, a lot of them have been uh, going online instead of being physical yeah. film festivals. So just recently um, prim- had this Australian premiere at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Oh. And there are a few other film festivals that are coming up um, that haven't announced their lineup yet. So I can't tell, I can't say which ones they are currently, yeah. but yeah. there's another four or five festivals as we're going along here. That's great. I mean, it's maybe something we can talk about later as well. I mean, you're the second uh, one we've had in the last three of these recordings that's had a premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival. So, uh, so well done. I know it's these are not the easiest easiest of times as we uh, all try to figure out how this is all going to play out uh, now and and in the future. Um, but I imagine once you've uh, been through these festivals, I mean, I, I'm sure you're going to get uh, picked up quickly because this was, uh, if I may say one of the most entertaining times I've had watching a film. I, I just, I highly recommend it to everyone once it finally comes out because it's so, um, well, I think uh, we're going to talk also about your background because I think it comes through in terms of uh, how, um, how tight and entertaining this is in terms of uh, the story. But uh, uh, people have heard, I've, uh, heard or, um, or watched the, the clip, which is part of our intro, but uh, maybe you can... Uh, for those of, well, most of our listeners will not have heard or seen the film unless they were at the film festival circuit. Um, maybe give us a little synopsis of what this film's about. Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, the story is about a company called Midway Games that was previously called Williams Electronics back in the 80s and became Midway in the 90s. And they were known for their incredibly bold and brash and, for the most part, violent video games um, for the arcades. Yeah. of that era and they really made a name for themselves with these games that just really broke all the rules and so you know in yeah, as many people may or may not know there's a big video game crash in the 80s and so when the 90s came around video games had to change and a lot of the changes were these things that midways game developers were creating and so i wanted to make a documentary about that company in that era and how they changed games uh, forever after that and just you know with their we call it the punk rock attitude of, of game yeah. development yeah i think you capture that extremely well i mean maybe for our listeners as well uh because a lot of people will not even appreciate in fact i i, I lived through this era um i didn't know about the 80s crash but what was i mean set the stage what was it like pre 
midway games? I mean, we, you know, what were arcades like, the games themselves? Yeah, so, you know, in, you know, in, the, hey, in, the, in the first heyday of video games, especially arcade games, you know, it, there were, you know, there were games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and, uh, you know, a lot of really fun, family-friendly games, very colorful. Um, and back then, everybody was a gamer. You know, you go to an arcade and you see families out there, you see little kids, you see the parents playing with them, and they're all very fun, abstract type of games. And that's, you know, when the, the medium was really starting to develop. Um, by the time you got to the, the mid, mid to late 80s, there were so many video games out there that uh, people just got tired of video games. And especially if you look at when games came home with you know systems like the Atari 2600, there's very little quality control. Everybody wanted to make a quick buck and basically ruined the industry. And that's what kind of led into this rebirth in the 90s. It was basically video games died so badly that there was nowhere to go but up and restart the entire medium all over again. And so that's what the 90s represented. Okay. And then that takes us to um, a fellow named Eugene Jarvis, a sort of voice in the wilderness. <laughs> now, uh, if uh, maybe still is in some ways. Uh, so he, he'd been active in the 80s, right? I mean, he's got some big name games, at least from my era, Defender, Robotron. But Yeah, he was, he was huge. Uh, you know, it's, he was basically the Steve Jobs of video yeah. games in the 80s. Um, he yeah. single-handedly, you know, he made a game called Defender that that game single-handedly made just hundreds of millions of dollars for what was back then called Williams Electronics. Yeah. And, uh, and so he made hit game after hit game and was just a psychotic genius, for lack of a better way of explaining it. Mm. And, and, you know, and as we get into the 90s, you know, he basically, we called him the godfather of video games yeah. because he just left such an impression on an entire generation of developers you know, um, that grew up in the 90s. And so he, um, I, I gather he left for a little bit, tried to go back to school or something, but then uh, is lured back to Williams. Yes. And... Um, so the next, uh, you, you then focus on um, a game called NARC. Now, yeah. So that was actually late 80s, wasn't it? That was the late, yeah, the very, very late 80s. And so, yeah, so Eugene, you know, after, when the crash happened um, in, the, in the late 80s, like, you know, like mid to late 80s, uh, Eugene decided that he just didn't want to do video games anymore. He went off to grad school and, uh, back in California. And, um, you know, he... After grad school, he felt the pull of video games. And you know, that's one of the deep, dark secrets of game developers is once you make a game, you can't get it out of your system. It's, it's, it's one of the most fulfilling and frustrating creative mediums out there. And you get it, it's intoxicating. And so he had to come back and he came back to Williams. And Williams at that time was, you know, their pinball division was doing pretty well, but they had almost no video games going on. And he wanted to come back and do one more video game and he wanted to do it for Williams. And he pitched this game called NARC that was influenced by, you know, what was back then the late 80s violent um, movie streak that was going on. You're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, talking about uh, movies like RoboCop and, right. you know, and the Exterminator and all these things. And Hollywood was all, was all about the, uh, the ultra violent movies. And so he wanted to make a video game that, that was basically the video game equivalent of these uh these action films and so he went in and he wanted to basically make 
an interactive movie using actual actors instead of cartoon characters. Yeah. Well, let's, I think there's, I want to talk a little more about that, but this, uh, let's take, I think this takes us a good point to uh, watch or listen to a clip that uh, you've gracefully shared with us. Uh, thank you so much um, uh, about NARC. And um, let's, uh, it's about a minute and a half long. And so um, um, let's, uh, let's listen to that now. I did have a question. At that point, we had filmed a few characters. We had filmed the environments, and I asked, uh, okay, we're a rocket launcher is one of your weapons now. And I said, okay, when a player fires the rocket launcher, what happens? And people said, what do you mean? I go, well, I can make it look real. These are real people. The mission was to, no, make, make it look real. body parts would fly. I mean, I guess this was one of the first, you know, body part games. <laughs> I think maybe the first. I remember like George was like, God, this is so cool. I can't believe this is so cool. And, and I came up and I was really being very gentle about it. And I just said, I mean, it is cool, but do, do you think, do you think that's a good thing to put in an arcade where little kids are there? You have to understand arcades at that point we're still very uh, democratic environments. Any family, any age could walk in without concern. And this escalated into a huge argument. I just remember it was a, a huge, huge screaming match. And all I'm saying is, I'm just saying we should think about it. I'm not trying to limit your creativity. I'm not trying to censor you. You know, I think, and I think too, with uh, a game that involved realistic content, when we cross that bridge of digitizing life. The game was no longer an escape. So that clip talks about narc and the violence, but I think you um, just before going into that, you, you talked about, I mean, this is what was really cutting edge, wasn't it? This whole um, uh, use of live action, digitizing yeah. uh, uh, actual, actual individuals. Yeah, that was something that you know, a couple of companies have dabbled in it, you know, a little bit yeah. here and there, but it, they were just executed very badly. And so Eugene really wanted to use real actors for two reasons. One, he just, you know, he wanted to get that Hollywood feel to it, a Hollywood action movie feel to it. But the other one is really for economics. And yeah. it's, you know, in back in the, you know, back in the late 80s or so in Japan, um, there, you know, some of the best arcade games come from, came from Japan and they had huge teams of people working on animation, just making incredible art. Um, Williams Electronics and even Midway after that was known to be very frugal, very <laughs> cheap, very just kind of, you know, yeah. down and dirty. And yeah. so there was never, you know, enough money for, to bring in, you know, a team of artisans. And yeah. so he thought to himself, you know what, if, if we can, instead of having a bunch of animators making art that's very expensive. Why don't we just bring in people, put them on tape, digitize, you know, the the images frame by frame, and get them into the game and see how that looks. And that, you know, that technology that they built there basically kickstarted everything that Midway did in the '90s. After that, yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, so basically, this this leads to a video game revolution, doesn't it? Yeah, it does because some people were looking at NARC and thinking like, "Wow, this looks like a movie." And you know, it seems kind of silly to look back, look at it now, because yeah, yeah. they're you know they're very low resolution sprites running around. But back then, you know, it was revolutionary, and people really went nuts over it. 
And you know, you you know, you couple that with just the sheer violence of the game itself, and you know, and it was just a whole new world was born, and that that set the tone for Midway. Yeah, and then they were, and so Williams and Midway were right at the center of all this, weren't they? Yeah, they you know they they took advantage of it. They took advantage of the controversy of NARC and really wanted to run with it. And, um, and they just thought, well, this is, you know, looks like this is what the consumers want at this point. So let's, let's dive in. I like, I think you captured, I, I just noticed it. It's sort of subtle, but what, at the end of one of the games, uh, in, in NARC, the sort of FBI little, <laughs> you know, public address sort huh. of a public service announcement comes up saying, you know, the war on drugs and everything. But, uh, um, so they fall. I mean, it just leads goes from from better to even be, better. I mean, it, it's um, Mortal Kombat's next, isn't that? Isn't that? Yeah. Right? So there are a couple of games in between as they're tweaking the technology and improving upon it. Um, you know, but like one of the key games before that was Terminator Two, and they really furthered the look of the game. But then, you know, Mortal Kombat comes around, and that was originally supposed to be a very small uh, project that. A couple of guys wanted to try out because um, there was another game was delayed, and mm. so the you know because we're making arcade games, there's a whole assembly line that's there, and so if a game is late or ends up getting canceled, something has to go in there. Otherwise, a lot of people working the assembly lines are going to get laid off, and so Mortal Kombat was just supposed to be a small six month game. Let's just put it together, and two you know two guys, John Tobias and Ed Boon came up with this idea of, well, you know what? Street Fighter 2 is doing fantastic. People mm-hmm. love fighting games. Why don't we try this digitizing technique on a fighting game? And by that point, you know, after NARC and Terminator 2, the process was a little bit more perfected. And really, Mortal Kombat is a culmination of how good that process became because it just blew people's minds away. Just big characters on screen that look completely realistic, incredible background that were a combination of, of hand-drawn art and photographs. And it just it just all came together. Yeah, and they were supposed to originally have uh, Jean Claude Van Damme on it, weren't they? Or yeah. were just trying, wasn't it? Yeah, Jean Claude Van Damme. You know, as people may or may not know, was a huge star at the yeah, time. Yeah. And so they, you know, after Terminator Two, Midway got very excited about licensing um, right. IP, and so they wanted to hit up Jean Claude Van Damme, and they actually signed him up to you know to be in the game, but he. At that point, he was at the height of a stardom. He was just, you know, from what I've been told, he was just a real jerk about things. <laughs> Very uncooperative. Yeah. And again, for a scrappy little Chicago company, you know, it's just, hey, it's all about the work. You know, we don't need this. Let's just, exactly. and this is for a small project. Let's just move on. And so they ended up creating their own characters, which was, if you look back on it now, it's just yeah. amazing because that's, yeah. you know, it's billion dollar franchise that's still going on now. And it's because Jean Claude Van Damme was just being a jerk. Yeah, exactly. And you got like <laughs> like you st- and you've got still got some of the actors that were that they brought in to for the live action. You know, you, the guy who played Johnny yeah. Cage. I recognized him immediately. Actually, wow. I, I was, <laughs> no, I don't. I didn't really even play the game, but I was like, wait a minute, that and um, you know, that it's 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 amazing. I mean, it, did you? I guess you had to track down all these people. And, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, I, I was very fortunate that. Um, I knew a lot of these people who made the games and stardom yeah. and everything. And they, you know, the majority of them all still live in Chicago. Uh, for some reason, people who live in Chicago <laughs> never, never leave the town. Yeah. And so it was very easy to get most of them. And, you know, 
you know, 20 years have passed. So a lot of, they were just very excited to be talking about, you know, the work that they did. Yeah. I think that's a, if, if you don't mind, let's, uh, we've got a good clip here. Um, we had a few Mortal Kombat clips, but this is one um, titled uh, Mortal Kombat Fatalities. Um, and I think it kind of gives a little, uh, for those who don't know or don't remember or have uh, decided not to remember, this is what, uh, this gives you a little insight into what Mortal Kombat was all, all about, especially when it got started out in the, uh, in the early 90s. You know, while I may, you know, have created maybe the, the visual qualities of the characters, um, you know, the backstory and, and whatnot, um, really the core of the product was, you know, its playability. And that started with Ed, you know, that always came from him sort of playing the game. And he would sit in his office for hours and, you know, you know, call people in to kind of, hey, try this, hey, try that. His games reflect his personality. I think his games bring out the way that Ed really feels about things because his nature is outrageous. There was a period at the end of, the, of, at the end of a match where you kind of got a free hit off of, the, off of your opponent. And we wanted to kind of put an exclamation point on it. And for us, it was always, you know, hey, watch me go do an uppercut. Somewhere along the way, Ed put in Johnny Cage punching off, you know, the opponent's head. I was like, you can't, I was like in shock. I was like, you can't do that. Holy cow, I was like, it looked so real to me that I was like, Boop, you just killed me. And he's like, yeah, isn't that really cool? And I was like, dude, you can't do that. And he goes, we can do whatever we want. And I was like, looked at him, I was like, you're right, we can because no boss has ever left it. I've never seen a boss hanging out with us. We could shoot whatever we want and that's what they get. I was never telling uh, Ed Boone, uh, hey, don't pull that, don't decapitate that guy's head. Okay. Instead, you know, I would. I remember suggesting to him, "Go, can't you do a fatality where you rip the guy's leg off, and beat the uh, the crap out of him with it, with his own leg?" From a management standpoint, we also believed that's what the the customer wanted. First of all, that's a, a another another great clip from the film. I think. Um, the uh, things also went in a slightly different direction. It wasn't all violence. Um, and uh, very soon they followed that up with uh, NBA Jam, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, NBA Jam was, uh, you know, as big as Mortal Kombat was at the time, a lot of people forget that NBA Jam was just as big, if not bigger. Um, it was definitely, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that game by itself in its first year grossed a billion dollars. And this is the same year that Jurassic Park came out, and it made three times the amount that Jurassic Park made. Um, and and all people, in quarters is one a year. All in quarters, that's the thing, a quarter at a time. And, um, and that game is an example of how in the, you know, arcade games made a lot of money in the 80s, but in the 90s, a game like NBA Jam really showed how designers were able to master the art of, you know, a fun game that monetizes extremely well. And, you know, the, you know, one of the quotes from the film is that, you know, the designers were tasked to make a game that will suck in a quarter every 45 seconds. And NBA Jam did that, you know, did more than that every 45 seconds. And, uh, and it was a combination of just, you know, it had to be fun ultimately, but, you know, can you make a game fun and in some ways manipulate people to keep putting in quarters because it's so fun. Okay, so I think that brings us to a really uh, a, another great clip. 
that looks at uh, NBA Jam and the success they had, and how initially they were a little concerned because they were getting reports that the uh, that the uh, the game was actually breaking down. Uh, we'll go go to the uh, clip, and we'll also take a little break for our uh, our listeners at home. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. We were getting calls about uh, games that were broken. I said, what? Because it's one of the things, you put a game on a test, you know, it's got to work, okay? And, and to have a game that's not working, it's like the height of stupidity. And the game was supposedly down. And we said, what the heck's going on here? So you go out there and you couldn't put any more quarters in the game. It had accumulated so many quarters that had jammed the coin mech and you couldn't put any more quarters in it. Unheard of collections. At all of our test locations, NBA Jam is collecting between 124 and 167% of what Mortal Kombat did during its first six weeks. Jurassic Park was the biggest film uh, at the time, and it was breaking all kinds of earning records. It made $350 million, and that was a milestone that people said, we, we can't believe it, it's, 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 it's incomprehensible. And here comes NBA Jam, and Mark said, I said, you know, can you tell me about how popular this really is? I can tell you this, uh, NBA Jam made a billion dollars and I said, in quarters? Welcome back to Factual America. I'm with uh, Josh Sway, director, writer, and producer of Insert Coin. Um, so, uh, Josh, you're talking about the, uh, it, it become a, at least video game arcade games have become a billion dollar uh, industry. Uh, and, um, you know, let's, let's cut, cut to the chase because I think, you know, hopefully uh, our listeners uh, will get to see this film relatively soon so uh don't want to just give away the whole uh the whole film <laughs> but uh um you you were sort of alluding to this business model um and i think you even call that segment uh uh in your film homecoming but basically um uh tell us what 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 was the downfall for uh well williams and Mid- midway specifically but for the industry in general well i mean so you know with the industry with the arcade industry, you know, it was about people coming, you know, leaving their house, coming to an arcade, sinking in quarters to keep playing on and on. And for a while, that was fine because I was really kind of, the, I wouldn't say the only option, but it was the best option for video games. You know, yeah. at the time, arcade machines were technologically at the top of the food chain. You know, you can, yeah. you know, if you had a Nintendo at home, it's fine, but it just didn't match that power. But what ultimately ended up happening is, you know, the the you know the CD-ROM became uh, a new medium that allowed for huge storage, much more powerful systems were starting to be developed, such as the PlayStation and the uh, Nintendo 64. And that comes in, and basically people started realizing that wow, these systems at home are just as powerful as what we're getting in the arcade, and I can just buy a game for forty, fifty dollars and never have to pay again. Yeah. And, and I'm paying, I mean, and it's like, you know, 30 to 40 hours of gameplay, I'm in. So, you know, as a consumer, it just made sense. And so arcades really had a hard time trying to keep up with that. And, you know, arcades, as we knew it at that time, started disappearing because, uh, you know, just because mm-hmm. of the economics. 
Yeah, yeah. Because what I remember is people, you know, people would have stacks of quarters like that and just put them on top <laughs> of the game and just keep keep, keep playing. Yeah, and their parents can't do laundry because the quarters are all missing, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think we've got this. Will take us to uh, what I think will be our last clip, but I think it quite quite eloquently and very succinctly kind of gets to the economics of it all. Um, and it's about uh, about a game called that I don't remember. I wasn't familiar with. What was it? Uh, not Generation X. What was it? Oh, Revolution X. Revolution X. Yes. So let's let's watch that clip, and then we'll come back and uh, discuss uh, insert coins some more with uh, Josh Sway. We had this thing where we were supposed to take a quarter every forty five seconds. That's what you were aiming to do with these arcade games, and, and NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat did that actually, um, but most of the other games didn't, and you ended up having to try and make story games really, really difficult to be constantly taking money. Well, there's only so much difficulty that someone is going to do in order to play through it once, because you played through it once and it cost you an arm and a leg, you don't want to do it again now. But the game just didn't earn. I mean, it's all about the earnings. It always is about the cash box. How does the cash box, is it fill? There it is and fill. What's my return investment? If I pay 4,000 or $5,000 for a game, I expect the operators are looking for the return on investment in six to nine months. So, um, I mean, besides, you talk a lot about the, the the business model and the economics of it all. I mean, from a, for a company like uh, Williams Midway, uh, how did that business model work? In that, they, did they actually sell the the games, the the consoles, and then the the arcade would just it would keep all the the quarters. So it was all yeah. about. Is that how it worked? It, it 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 was a very strange business model, and this is something that a lot of people didn't realize is that. Uh, what happens for the, you know, in general is, you know, Williams slash Midway yeah. would create the software for the games and the hardware, which is the arcade cabinet. So you have these giant arcade cabinets, and such, and they sold anywhere from between four to five thousand dollars for an arcade unit. And so what would happen though is that they don't they don't sell directly to the arcades themselves. What they do is they sell them to a distributor. So the distributor buys it from Midway. And then the distributors from there then sells it to an operator. And the operator has, they have basically territories that they, that they send their machines to. And they go, and those territories have arcades. And so then you have the arcade owners. So there's multiple levels going on. And so what happens is that the, you know, the, when the arcades are placed, when the machines are placed in an arcade, the arcade owners, they're not necessarily buying the machine. They're basically allowing them to put the machines into their space and they split the revenue I of see. the machine. Yeah. And so it's, it's very interesting because uh, I, kinda, I knew the dynamics of this, but uh, when I got really deep in the documentary and, and figured out this whole business model, it, it was kind of mind boggling at the time. <laughs> so, you know, you know, a good example is you know, if, you know, if Mortal Kombat... Um, cost you know they, if they sold it for four thousand dollars you know they sold over fifty thousand units of them now when i talk to some video game people their their mind is oh you're selling you know a disc of games and they're thinking oh you know a, a, a game on disc is like fifty dollars and you only sell fifty thousand units of this game so like, no no you gotta remember we sold fifty thousand units of a game that costs four thousand dollars each and so you multiply that and it's it's insane, and our budgets were super low, so yeah. the profit margins were nuts. Yeah, I mean, I think you get you um, again. It's a uh, you just reminded me. There's a point in the film too, towards the end, I think, where they talk about how uh, some of these people were or were not uh, compensated uh, in terms of uh, the work they did on, the, or how they how much they were compensated. Um, 
I mean, this is, I found it ex- extremely riveting and it, and I'm not even a really wasn't a big video gamer. I just don't have the eye hand coordination to, for that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, my limit was battle zone back in the eighties. Oh, but that's a uh, good game. Yeah. It's, I, wanted to, I, I think that's like the first VR game that was ever made. If you really think that's what that. some, I, I looked that up today. I had no yeah. idea, but that's maybe that's why I liked it or, or something. <laughs> but it, was a, it was at our local pizza hut. That was the only place that had it. And um, whenever we'd go out for pizza, that's, I would be on there. And that's uh, <laughs> my stack of quarters. Um, didn't last very long. I can tell you, but uh, the, um, I mean, what is this? like all great documentaries obviously it's about williams and midway and these these incredibly you know these this these dynamic people who design the games but from what what do you think what is this film really about you know it's about quite a few different things but for, you know for me ultimately it's about you know the how design and commerce comes together to create mm. the entertainment that we grew up with you know, a lot of people, when they see entertainment, they don't understand, you know, that sometimes it's designed with the business side in mind. And so that's why the film really concentrates on so much on the business side of things, yeah. because, you know, those games were designed that way for a reason, which is to suck in the quarters. It wasn't designed so to tell a grand story for five hours long. That you yeah. know that you could you could sit there and watch forever you know and they you can watch in one sitting. So because of that, you know some of the games are super fun because of that style of design. Yeah. While other games were not super fun because of it, and it just you know a lot of it came down to just how people you know um, can really lean into this type of business model. And there was also they had I mean these guys had. Uh, uh, <laughs> no offense, but for a bunch of geeky guys, I mean, it's like they had some insights into human uh, nature and psychology. I mean, it was interesting. Some even comments about depending on the type of person you were killed by in a game would determine yeah. whether you would want to put your quarter in or not, you know? Yeah, and, th- and that's, that goes back to what I was talking about with Eugene Jarvis. Uh, he affected, you know, the entire team because he, he literally is a genius. I, I can't even begin to describe how incredibly smart he is and not just academically, but just on an emotional level. He really was just very insightful on how people behave. And so, he, yeah, his, his, you know, his comment about like, hey, you, you know, I know that people are not going to want to die in a video game by some small little person. You know, you, yeah. you know, you know if you get killed, you want to get killed by the biggest badass thing out there. <laughs> so, you know? I think that's and, a quote, yeah. Yeah, and so it's just you know, and so that type of yeah, and I and that permeated through all of Midway's game design. At least on the most successful game was that acting on those emotions, acting on those instincts, and not so much look, you know, not so much you know, writing a script, trying to analyze everything ahead of time. A lot of it was really just like this gut feeling. But you know, these guys made so many games that they knew what the recipe was, you know, just like the back of their hand. Yeah, I think, I mean, you you touch on, so as you say, you touch on the uh, business side. One thing you also touch on, it's a it's got a business element as well, but it's also the dynamics of teams, I thought was well done. Because um, I, I know from my own experience in the, in the business world, I mean, the best teams I've ever been a part of were the ones that had a bit of tension to them. Um, and uh, there seemed to be a decent amount of tension there. Yeah. Um, it's a fine balance. Obviously, they can become dysfunctional if there's too much, but... Uh, it seemed like uh, even the guy who was the um, CEO had an inter- he had, 
we'll say an interesting view of, uh, of management, but uh, uh, it was all about uh, creating this competition between everyone. Yeah, and Neil Nicastro, who, you know, who, yeah. who was CEO, I mean, just, yeah, he, he came from New York. He had a very New York attitude about things. And so he comes to Chicago, you know, to the Midwest, which has a very different personality. Um, and he's, you know, he is just as influential on, every, on the design of the games as anybody because not that he designed the games, but he designed the way the teams interacted. And it was all about um, conflict and challenging each other and competition. And it wasn't in, you know, it wasn't in a mean way. It was in a very informal way, but he wanted everyone to fend for themselves. So it's kind of like, it was like Lord of the Flies basically. (laughs) And so with arcade games, at least in the early days, it worked very well, you know, and, and, you know, everybody was very cooperative with each other. If somebody needed help, everyone was more than happy to help and give feedback and everything else. Um, but there was also that layer of, you know, like I need to make sure that I'm making more money than this person. It was, it was a constant contest. I need to make sure I'm selling more units. And a lot of it, again, is from this New York sales attitude that was kind of infused throughout, uh, throughout the company. And so it worked great in the arcade days when games are small. Our teams were really small. There were maybe four or five people or so. Um, later on, as the game industry got bigger, and you know, I talked about the CD-ROM games, you know, like the mm-hmm. PlayStation games that had much larger scope, um, that type of management would start to fall apart. You can't, you yeah. can't do that when you're dealing now with 50 to 100 people. Um, yeah. and, and so it's just, it was great for that era, but, uh, but yeah, it didn't last long after that. <laughs> it was. It was a sort of survival of the fittest uh, yeah. school of, of, of management. But uh, I think um, I, I want to talk about y- y- your insights, I think, are very interesting because you, um, yeah, you went to, you, you originally were, you went to film school, you were going to go do film, but how did you get into video games? Yeah, I, yeah, I originally went to film school. I thought I was going to graduate, uh, move back to California and get into the film industry. And um, in my last year in film school in Chicago, um, I got really into computer graphics and yeah. that computer graphics were just starting to come around uh, at that point. And so one of the things that I was really interested in was combining my film video knowledge into the computer, digitizing video, manipulating it, and having all kinds of fun with it. And this is, you know, this was before Photoshop or even After Effects or any of those wow. programs. Yeah. I would do it manually. And at that point, uh, Midway had just released the first Mortal Kombat and, you know, had huge success. And they were looking to really just get into the whole idea of using video for all their games. And so they were looking for people that had this type of knowledge. Up until then, most of their artists were really, you know, they're great illustrators, more comic book artists, but they need to, you know, more people who knew video. And so a friend of mine was working on um, a game there and he called me in. I went and interviewed. I, I ended up interviewing nine times over the course of a year uh, before I got hired. And then I got hired and I thought I would be there for maybe, a, you know, a year or two and then go back to filmmaking. And, uh, you know, 25 years later, I was still stuck making video games. <laughs> well, so you say stuck, but uh, I mean, this, yeah. is, this is not that uncommon these days, is it now? I mean, this is what the business has become. Uh, I mean, I know in this country, video games are bigger than the film industry. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's it's amazing. The uh, the technology, the video game technology has just grown so much. It's leaps and bounds, and now it's getting you know 
that technology is starting to en you know enter the you know the film uh, industry, and so. Um, so I feel very lucky that I've been able to keep up with the technology. And so like one to show such as Disney's Mandalorian, you know, they're using, you know, a game engine for their, you know, for their uh, backdrops and everything. And for us, that's like, you know, that's stuff we've been working on for years. Um, yeah. it's really fun. It's really fun to see that all coming together. And so for me personally, it's like, it's nice to see that. And, you know, I'm, and I'm, and I still straddled, you know, the video game slash film world, uh, back and forth. So, uh, it's been very fulfilling. And so where did you, uh, I mean, you're, so you've been, uh, I mean, you, as you say, you've been, you've worked on Mortal Kombat, um, Fight Night, Tony Hawk, or some of the other uh, games you've, you've worked on. Um, well, what made you decide, wait a minute, I want to get back to filmmaking and this is the film I want to make. Because this is, is yeah. this your debut. Yeah, this is my debut. And, um, you know, I, I chalk it up to having a midlife crisis, you know, <laughs> like a while back ago. Yeah. And, uh, and I had always known that I wanted to eventually make at least one film in my life. I just felt like it was just some, you know, I had gone to school for it. And I never got to do it. And so, you know, when I started getting the itch to do that, um, you know, one of the things that I had learned from somebody, I can't I don't remember who it was, but they basically said, you know, for your first time film, whether it's documentary or whatever it's going to be, um, you know, make it about something, you know, you know, it's a low hanging fruit, you know? And so that way, you're you're learning the technical job. You're learning about story, you know, telling thing, and you're not spending so much time trying to discover the story. And so I thought that was a that was great advice. And you know, I I was profiled on 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 this website called Polygon. Um, they did a profile about my career in video games. And after that article, um, I started thinking to myself, like, you know, I was talking about Midway Games, and I had worked at Midway Games during the '90s, during the era that the film was about. And I thought, you know what, you know, people know the games and they know some information, but nobody's ever really did a holistic view of that entire era. And I felt like I was kind of uniquely positioned to do that. And it was getting to a point where, you know, it's 20 years later and people are starting to get nostalgic for it. And so I yeah. thought the time was right to do that. And I figured if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So I just kind of, you know, <laughs> we grabbed for the brass ring and just yeah. go for it. I mean, I think, I mean, except for the coronavirus, I think your timing is perfect because uh, I, you've got the, the 90s are hot. Uh, we've got Last Dance, so Chicago's hot. In yeah. that way. You've got, uh, you've got uh, NBA Jam, NBA's uh, hot again. I mean, it, well, it, was, or it never was not hot, I guess. Um, so um, I think you're, you're there. I mean, we had the, um, we had, uh, there's a, people may not know there's going to be a uh, Baywatch documentary made and we had them I on heard about that. Yes. So that we've had <laughs> them on. Uh, and this, uh, I was just not aware that, uh, cause that's the type of person I am, but, uh, not aware of how hot the nineties are at the moment, but, uh, seems to me this, and this captures it at least the way I remember it. it captures oh, that's it great to hear. Well. That's great uh, to hear. <laughs> I mean, what was the receptiveness to this project? Cause there you are, uh, Here's Josh showing up saying, hey, guys, I want to interview you. You used to work with me. Uh, and I, got, I know some of you may not even talk to each other anymore. I mean, how, how, how was that? I, you, you know what? Everybody was so happy that somebody was doing this. I, it, it, almost everybody said, like, I, you know, I can't believe nobody has done this yet. And they were really happy that somebody they knew was doing it, you know. And so, yeah, yeah it was just great to talk to everybody again. And hear their sides of the story so i that it was interesting because i went in pretty much knowing what the story was but 
you know, once I started talking to people, it became a little bit of uh, kind of like a Rashomon situation yeah. where you, know, you had the same story from different points of views. Right. So that was really fun to hear. And originally, I didn't think I was going to do much in regards to the business side of things. I had only talked to the, the developers, but that's who I was comfortable with. But as, as time went along, um, I started really getting interested in the business end of things because mm-hmm. it was kind of territory for me. And, uh, and I felt that that really made the documentary. And I was very lucky to get the CEO of the company. He remembered me. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, but you know, at the time I was just some punk kid. And so, but I was very, it was, uh, I was very grateful for him to do this interview because he's never been interviewed ever about any of this stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, so for him to sit down with me for a few hours to go over things uh, was just amazing. So yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it was almost like a, like a, like a family reunion in many ways. Gosh, it sounds like a, I mean, Sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, um, I mean, how uh, you you uh, I think it, you definitely get a flavor for what it was like working there. Um, is it uh, is that pretty? I mean, it's, so uh, you know that's the way it was in the '90s. Is that the way it is in this industry? I mean, it seems pretty pretty uh, gung ho. It's scrappy. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. It depends, you know, it, there are many. I mean, back then it was very scrappy, and this, but it, you know, Midway was a big company, and they kept it scrappy. Yeah. Nowadays, the game industry is much more professional and much larger, though, in, in nature. So if you go to an EA or a Microsoft or an Activision, it's not going to be that scrappy. But, um, you know, there are still a lot of game developers that are like that are like this. You know, most of them are you know, indie game developers. And um, and I always, uh, you know, I always say that Midway, the way we were managed, the way we made games, we were the most well-funded indie video game team out there. You know, because they left us alone. We did whatever we yeah. wanted to do. All they cared about was just be on time and on budget and just tell us what the game is you know, when, yeah. <laughs> when you're done with it. And so that's the way the indie game development is. Um, but yeah, but in terms of large studios, it's not like that anymore, okay. um, which may or may not be a bad thing. You know, games are a little bit less scrappy than they used to be. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I think, uh, no, that's a, I mean, that is an in, um Interesting point. I think uh, it struck me it's almost like what you sometimes hear, whether it's true or not, about Google and letting guys just go off and do whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that actually really happens. But uh, uh, no, it was quite. Uh, and then the competition between everyone, I think it was very interesting. Uh, one thing in watching this that struck me is that there is a person missing in it. I even looked him up to make sure he hadn't died. Uh, and that's uh, did you try to get Ed Boone in on this? Project. Yeah, we we yeah I I know Ed really well. We've you know we've met up more than a few times, and yeah. uh, I was trying to get him on there. And you know, there's just it just it just can get worked out. A lot of it has to do with you know he still works for he still works on Mortal Kombat. You know right. uh, that IP is now owned by Warner Brothers, and there are just certain sensitivities to it. So I wanted to be very respectful to him, and you know and you know made sure that he was in the film and and. You know, I, and you know, and we talk about him extensively, uh, but yeah, it was just one of those things that we couldn't work out. But you know, ultimately, you know, there's a lot of Mortal Kombat in there, but ultimately, it's a, it's really about the entire output of that team, and yeah. so it's definitely a miss, though. Yeah, no, but I think you still get a you have, you have some interesting. Uh, I won't give it away, but there's some interesting points people make about. Uh, Oh, well, especially how Mortal Kombat sort of reflects uh, Ed Boon's uh, <laughs> uh, personality, but maybe we'll leave it at that. Um, so the uh, uh, we've been 
talking about the we'll continue talking about this uh this um this great film you've made but this uh the project i mean now we've got you're supposed to you're supposed to do the debut south by southwest coronavirus has has happened i mean um how are you making the best of a of a difficult situation from uh from that standpoint yeah i, I think you know like many filmmakers that are you know that we're supposed to be at south by and and so on um you know a lot of it is we're kind of figuring it out as we go along um because you know there's still a lot of value in the film festivals and just getting the word out getting that excitement but you know now now being online you know it makes it it's a little different so everyone is still kind of figuring that out you know my you know my thing is that um you know, I want to take, you know, I've, I've worked on the film for a long time and I don't want to rush it out and just, you know, mm. and start panicking and just, you know, just get it out there. So, well, you know, so, you know, we're still going to go through these various film festivals just to get the word out, you know, working uh, with um, Cargo uh, releasing in films out in New York City and they're, you know, working on the plans for uh, various, you know, distribution for the film itself. And so it has, haven't got gotten everything nailed down yet, but we're kind of marching our way towards it. And um, and hopefully it'll be out very soon. <laughs> that's, only, that's the only thing I could say at this point. Well, I I hope so too because I mean I've, I'm probably the one of the few people certainly this side of the pond that's had a chance to see it. But uh, I do hope people do get a chance to see it. I I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think um, uh, I mean back to this thing with festivals. I mean for many of our listeners, I know that one of the points well besides festivals, seeing you know networking and things that you know, festivals have played this really important part in terms of helping uh, independent filmmakers get distribution. Uh, now that everything's gone, gone online, is that, com- is that completely gone? There's that, that element is, is gone from these festivals, isn't it? I, I mean, it's, you know, it, it remains to be seen how much of an impact it, you know, impact change it's going to be. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those things where there, there's just, there's also, there's also the prestige of the festivals themselves getting accepted and it's, it's a nice stamp of approval for the film itself. So even if the presence of, um, you know, like even if the sales presence is different from it, you know, when I look at the long tail of things, you know, having those, the stamp of approvals from those festivals will help the film in the long run because it differentiate um, the film from, you know, from other you know, films, obviously like for me, you know, for insert coin, there's, you know, it's about video games and there's a ton of stuff about video games out on YouTube and other, uh, right, other right. channels and such. And they're all really great, you know, but for me, having gone through this current, um, you know, process, um, you know, it's something I want to do because I wanted to differentiate my film from, you know, from that. And not saying that one is better than the other, but I, I, I wanted to, really just go the traditional documentary route with this, uh, you know, with this um, subject matter. And so that's why I'm kind of sticking with, you know, with what we're doing right now. Well, and I think the thing is, is there's no wrong or right answer because no one really knows what's, I mean, I know some who aren't uh, doing festivals, some who are, who still are as such as yourself. Uh, I know, um, did you take part in that? South by tried to put everything on uh, Amazon, didn't they? But uh, I, decent number of the documentary filmmakers didn't go on along with that. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it, I, it, you know, I definitely appreciated what they were, you know, what they were doing with that and stuff. I mean, you know, what, what an amazing opportunity to get your film out into so many yeah. people. 
I think the thing that kind of held us back just a little bit on that was it, it, it was still very early on in those days. You know, there, you know, yeah, we're, still, yeah. we're still reeling from the fact that South by got canceled. And so <laughs> when this was put together, um, there were just a lot of un- unanswered questions about it. So yeah. it wasn't that there, it wasn't like a positive or a negative thing. It was just like, well, you know, we don't know what the long-term impact of this may be because you're suddenly you're putting your film out to hundreds of millions of people. How does it, Right. Does it change the dynamics for for sales of the film later on? And nobody knew the answer, so you know we just wanted to be a little cautious about that. And I think the thing is, we still don't know the answer, do we? we still don't. <laughs> I mean, that's that's where we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, Josh, I mean, what is what's next? So you've done the uh, like they tell authors, like they tell filmmakers, do some. Your first project should be something about something you're passionate about or know. Uh, what's what's next for you? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I have, you know, I'm sure your family wants to know too. Yeah, they want to know. Yeah, they're like, can you get out of the house? You know, like, exactly. <laughs> go do something. Um, now it's there, there are three or four different projects that uh, that I'm kind of looking at. Um, they're mostly all pop culture based because I really like pop culture a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, one one of them, and I don't mean to be coy about them, just because I'm still trying to figure this out. But yeah, one oh, of them yeah. is video game related, but the others are not. Um, my, you know, one concern I have is that if I, this is my first film and, you know, making about video games has been great. I don't know if I want to do a second film about video games because then suddenly I become the video, the video game documentary yeah. guy. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, nothing wrong with that, but I was just like, ah, oh, there might be some other things I want to do that might be harder to do later on if I, if I were to do that. Um, but I love, you know, you know, I love, you know, music, video games, comic books, and skateboarding. So something, <laughs> and Chicago. So something, you know, <laughs> hovering around those things. And uh, so we'll see. Yeah, I, but I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm taking a long break from video games and, kind of, and really focusing on, uh, on films and some, and some other interactive projects. So, so if we want to keep tabs on you and where you, what, what you move to next, what's the best way of doing that? Boy, I, you know, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So it's a okay. uh, Josh Y T S U I. And, um, that not necessarily saying that it's great content I'm putting out there, but it's just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> mindless drivel. Um, but, uh, there's that. And then the, um, and then the, uh, insert coin doc is the other, uh, is the other, uh, Twitter feed for the film itself. But those, okay. those two accounts are probably the best way of keeping, uh, you know, keep okay. track of where I am. <laughs> well, I, I wish you luck. I mean, if you do the, uh, the same production value and editing and everything that you did with this one, I think you'll do, uh, I'm sure you'll do quite well. So uh, Thank you very it was, much. It was, uh, I tell you, it was uh, certainly, I mean, I, talking to Alex here, who does, it was in the studio. Uh, um, I think my attention span's not what it used to be, but that, uh, that first hour was just like, it, it flew by. And I, I found myself just really like, laughing and uh being entertained and uh and it's uh, i think it's very insightful into a into a, a, a world that's and it's not just nostalgia i think there's a lot that you that comes out of this besides just remembering how uh all that stuff we thought was so cutting edge maybe doesn't look quite so cutting edge any anymore <laughs> you know but uh <laughs> Yeah. So, hey, well, uh, unfortunately, I think that's that uh, takes us to the end of our time, uh, Josh. So I just want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast. It's uh, have been a joy having you. Um, uh, just to remind our listeners uh, that we've been speaking with Josh Sway, the uh, director, writer and producer of Insert Coin. 
Uh, also want to give a shout out to This Is Distorted um, here in uh, Leeds, England, where we record the uh, podcast. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.